Welcome to TechLink in Conversation. This episode is part of our vulnerability series. My name's Hannah Coffey and I am the Vulnerability and Client Assistance Manager at Technical Connection. During our conversations throughout the series, myself and Jan Levy from Three Hands will be speaking with a number of organisations, charities and importantly lived experts across a range of vulnerabilities. We hope through our episodes to bring life to a range of vulnerable circumstances, to raise awareness of the signs and the symptoms that financial planners and support teams may wish to consider so that you have the best conversations with your clients to ensure the greatest outcomes. So hi everyone and a very warm warm welcome. We're really, really lucky today to have two brilliant people in the room. Uh, Nicola Sharp-Jeffs, who founded uh, Surviving Economic Abuse, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll let Nicola talk more about uh, the work of the charity. Um, but uh, we're lucky to have Nicola. She was awarded an OBE for her work in this area. She was absolutely instrumental in having government uh, take on economic abuse as part of the statutory definition of domestic abuse. Because until recently, Nicola, that wasn't the case, was it? And we're going to get into what is economic abuse in a moment. Um, so wonderful to have you here. And we've also got Annie. And Annie is an expert by experience and has very kindly agreed to come and uh, tell her story and, and, and shed light on it, all with a view to protecting others and helping our audience of financial advisors to recognize the signs and um, intervene if and where possible and, and, and support clients in an appropriate way. So that'll probably do as an introduction from me. Uh, I haven't introduced myself. My name's Jan. <laughs> I'm from Three Hands and we sit between businesses and charities and we bring the two together for meaningful conversations and meaningful activities. That will do, I think, on that front. Um, Annie, um, you've very kindly come to tell your story. Um, so I'm just going to hand over to you to just to explain the basics, just covering maybe three or four minutes of um, what happened to you and what you'd like to share with people. Yeah, so um, when I met my now, thankfully, ex-husband, we, we bought a house together and we thought we were doing things sensibly, so we had, had our own separate bank accounts and um, we had a joint account for bills and we were both paying the same amount of money into that account each month. Um, but what happened over time was that he would buy things on credit cards or you know, credit, basically, but he would set the direct debit up into the joint bills account but refused to put any more money in it. Um, and over time, basically what happened was I ended up getting a second job and then a third job just to try and cover the outgoings in that account. And over time, what happened as well, we both did well in our careers, um, but then I got made redundant. So. And that was just after our first child was born. Um, and that basically led to a complete change in the dynamic in our relationship because previously I'd earned quite decent money as well. Um, but once I'd lost my job and been made redundant, I found it very difficult to get another job of the same amount of salary that I had previously. Um, he also said to me, even though I was on a lesser paid job, that he wouldn't contribute to the childcare or anything and expected me to still pay all the money into this bank account. And obviously over time, I didn't realise at first that pushing you against a wall when you had an argument and becoming aggressive was 
domestic abuse, which obviously I can look back now and see that that was the start of it, because he didn't actually hit me, properly punch me and give me a black eye until we'd already got a child, which was eight years into the relationship. And people say, oh, why don't you leave? And I was one of those people that said, you know, if anyone hit me, I'd leave. But this was eight years in, he dropped to his knees, he'd never do it again, he was crying, he didn't, it was work, um, giving him stress. But I forgave him because he'd never done that before. Um, and what happened was over time, he became, the incidents happened more frequently and were more severe and he was less apologetic with each one. If I hadn't have done this, if I hadn't have done that, then he wouldn't have done it in the first place. Um, so he also became very sulky and aggressive if he wanted something, almost childlike, sort of toddler tantrum over, I want that, buy it for me. And if I didn't, then that would create another incident. Mm. So I felt compelled, it was sort of coercion really, that to avoid my children, because I ended up having three with them, to avoid them seeing what what was happening to me then I would buy him things and you know if if something broke I had to instantly drop everything and pop to the shop and buy a replacement for it and if I did that on my credit card because it was cheaper for me to do that than have him rant and rave smash something else up in anger or potentially the kids seeing me getting a beating um, and we lived different lifestyles really um, throughout from then on I was basically so poor that I was making food out of nothing for the kids and going to the boot sale to buy their clothes. Um, whereas he kept all his money and he became quite successful in his role and um, was just going away for long weekends, luxury weekends. Um, he loved motorbikes. He had a brand new motorbike at about 13, 14,000 pounds every six months. And then he'd buy new exhaust for it and an extra 2,000 pounds. He went to the motorbike Grand Prix and didn't just go and watch it, but actually stayed in the hotel with the riders and had dinner with them in the evening. Whereas I was wearing clothes that didn't actually fit me because I was so stressed. It, was, it wasn't a case that I looked scruffy, but it was more that I, I couldn't, I'd lost so much weight, like three stone, that nothing looked right on me. And I was walking around in baggy clothes um, and, you know, just to give you, people might say, oh, why didn't you leave? I didn't actually think that I could afford to live without him because he would tell me that I was useless with money. And I felt that, well, he earns 50,000 pounds a year. You know, if I haven't got that 50,000 pounds, even though he didn't contribute anything of it to anything, I felt that on my own, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I believed that I was just hopeless with money management. Mm -hmm. And what did it all mean for your bank balance? I We had the joint account, um, basically had a £7,500 overdraft limit on it, and he ran it up to the hilt. And what would happen was um, I would just put all my money into it and just borrow more money, which, made, which was why it made me think that I was paying for food on credit cards. Um, the bank said that we couldn't have um, the overdraft anymore. Um, so I, I went in and took a loan to pay off the joint overdraft on my own. Um, but they were supposed to cancel it, but they didn't. So it ran up again. 
Mm. So they asked me to go in and then I ended up taking a £15,000 loan in my own name for basically the bills that paid all his credit cards and extravagant lifestyle. Um, and that's how I actually ended up leaving him in the end because the violence was daily. Um, I mean, just to give you an example of how sort of it's not always physical signs that you see. He, t- he told me that I was so useless um, and that I deserved to die and that everyone else deserved to be rid of me. So he dragged me up the stairs by my hair, put the lid of the toilet down, sat on it and held my head to the floor. And while the bath ran up and said that he was going to drown me. And so I had to wait for the bath to fill up while he told me that everyone would be better off without me because I was so useless, everyone hated me. Um, And then he pulled the plug out at the end and said that he was going to give me another chance to redeem myself. Um, So that that daily thing that was happening, as well as the violence, you know, you don't feel in control of your life whatsoever and you do believe that you're useless as well. so much going on. Thank you very much for sharing that. And I guess there's this obviously very clear overlap Nicola, in there in, 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 in Annie's case between domestic abuse, the violence associated with domestic abuse and economic abuse. But if we focus on economic abuse for a moment, how do you define that, Nicola? So I think Annie's given some Annie's given some really good examples um, about that. Um, so we see sort of three kind of controlling behaviours underneath economic abuse. Um, so the first is restriction, um, which is probably what people most think about when they think about economic abuse. Um, so this is actually stopping someone from going to work or stopping them from having access to their own bank account or joint bank account, not being consulted about big purchases such as a house or a car, um, and financial information being kept secret. So it kind of um, creates a kind of a situation where someone just doesn't know um, what they earn what they own um, and what's available to them if they did decide to leave. Then we see exploitation, which is what Annie's um, experience really speaks to. So, you know, as Annie's described, a partner refusing to contribute to household costs, running out debt in the partner's name, uh, making them work all hours to fund their lifestyle. Um, and then we see sabotage. Um, so again, Annie really spoke to that um, in terms of behaviours, like destroying items that then have to be replaced. Um, so that might include a mobile phone. Mm. Um, sometimes we hear about partners disconnecting utilities, so that a fee has to be paid to reconnect them. Um, and also, you know, and I know this was Annie's experience also, that can include sabotage of the credit rating through all that debt that's being taken out in their name. Yeah. Um, so whether it's dependency or this insecurity um, caused through the restriction, the exploitation or the sabotage, the end effect is the same. And again, Annie talked to it, just believing that there aren't those economic resources, that kind yeah. of money, um, transportation, um, accommodation available. You know, How would you survive and how would you rebuild your life independently if you were to leave? Yeah. And the impacts are clearly huge in terms of both financial, the debt that you ended up with, um, and emotional. But how common is this? What's the scale of this problem? I mean, your charity, Surviving Economic Abuse, has grown enormously over the last few years, which must must say something about the scale of the problem. It really does. And I think it goes back to your point around how we understand domestic abuse. And so people still really think about it as physical violence. But as we've heard, it's this controlling or coercive behaviour, which includes economic abuse, but also, again, as Annie spoke to, emotional abuse, um, sexual abuse, um, isolation, intimidation, um, you know, this is all what we describe as domestic abuse. But because of that, people don't necessarily um, 
have the right terminology. Um, so they might experience the control, but not know what to name it. Mm -hmm. So we um, influence government to name economic abuse, as you said, within the Domestic Abuse Act. So that's really um, heightened awareness um, so people can name their behaviours and come mm -hmm. forward, which is why I think we've seen so much demand for the work that we do. And in terms of who it affects, can you, is it across the board? Can you generalise? Is it certain demographics, certain levels of wealth? Um, or is it just people across the board? It's absolutely people across the board. Um, we see two things. Again, we see abusers take advantage of existing vulnerability or inequality. Um, so, for example, women have historically been economically unequal, so therefore they disproportionately experience domestic abuse, generally and economic abuse specifically, um, because of that inequality. Um, but when different inequalities come together, then we see people at increased risk. So, for example, disabled women are at disproportionate risk as well. Um, but again, Annie's story is an example of someone who was actually very economically secure. And what happened here was that the partners sought to create the conditions um, for that insecurity through their behaviour. Yeah. Um, so through um, that means it can happen to absolutely anybody. Yeah. And I should have mentioned, thank you, and I should have mentioned that Annie's story is a news piece on the BBC website. Um, and if you Google BBC, my husband ran up a £58,000 debt, you'll find that story. Important to proceed it with the BBC, because when I Googled just my husband ran up a £58,000 debt, I got a completely different story. <laughs> Nothing related to this. Um, so Google BBC, my husband ran up a £58,000 debt, um, if you want to have a look at Annie's story. And again, thank you for sharing it in that way as well. Um, and the £58,000, that says everything, doesn't it, about the financial impact. And so what, briefly, Annie, dealing with the financial impact as well as the emotional impact, incredibly, you got your life back on track. Super briefly, how did you go about that? Um, I did. I mean, obviously, at the time that I was with him, and this is something that I want to get across as well, um, people might working in the finance sector might question why maybe someone doesn't pay a priority debt but will pay a lot of money for a sky bill and things like that. But for me, if that sky was cancelled, that, that would have meant more abuse because keeping him happy was what I needed to do. So, you know, if someone's reluctant to cancel something that seems like non-priority, I think that's really important um, to question why. Um, for me, when I left, um, I, I can't overstate the um, amount of stress and pressure that I felt under with these mounting bills. And when I went to um, step change, um, and I really thought that I was going to lose my house um, and, and sort of have to move into social housing and um, just just never have any money ever again. Um, but I went to them and I got all the paperwork out and I had 17 different people that I owed money to, which totaled £58,370. And I think if we're thinking as well, this is quite some time ago, so I did run it through the inflation checker. It's about the equivalent to about £84,000 a day worth of debt. So that's how astronomical it was. Mm. Um, but I have to say that when I went to Step Change, they were so helpful and lovely and actually agreed very minimal repayments to everyone at first. And then over the years, um, you know, with inflation and pay rises and things like that, I went without and and still continue to pay it off, um, which I did, which was such a lovely feeling. But what 
the ongoing thing was that my house is very run down. I did manage to keep my house. Um, but where I was unable to ever get small repairs fixed, it, I'm now in a situation where I'm doing a second job again um, just to get the money to replace all these huge jobs that need doing. So it's had a very long-lasting impact on my life, as well as the fact that he met someone um, who was quite well off. I believe he was seeing her before I even left him, but he married her within um, a year of our divorce and um, gave up his job um, so that he didn't have to pay me anything. Wow, okay, okay. Um, your level of debt and the number of um, creditors, I think, is above average, right? Because I think the average level of debt is something like two and a half thousand pounds and five creditors, but clearly in some cases it's much higher. Are those stats right? Have I, have I got that right, Nicola? Yeah, so we know that those who experience domestic abuse, 95% will experience economic abuse as part of that controlling and coercive yeah. behaviour. Um, and 60% of that number will be coerced into debt in the way that Ali described. Yeah. Um, it's actually £4,500 um, is the average debt with wow. five different creditors. Okay. Um, but what I would say is that one of the things that we've been able to do over the last few years um, is really challenge that repayment of debt that's been taken out in a coerced way. Um, I was actually hearing stories like Annie's that really... Um, fueled the passion I have for this work because the idea that someone should be paying for how many years was it that you had to pay that off? Mm -hmm. I think it was 12 or 13. Yeah, 14. you know, 12 yeah. years after leaving, you know, that payment going out every month, a reminder of what happened, um, you know, the standard of living, having to, you know, cut back, um, just seems so unfair. Um, so we started to ask creditors to write that debt off, to offer forbearance, um, and we're seeing that increasingly. Um, and we're now working as part of the UK financial wellbeing strategy to introduce something called the economic abuse evidence form, where we can um, prove that economic abuse has happened to multiple creditors and ask for that write-off um, in the hope that we get some consistency. Um, and we are seeing that increasingly, you know, and that makes a huge difference. And I feel, you know, really sad <laughs> that Annie had to go through what yeah. she did. Yeah. Um, you know, she shares her story and she's so generous and she's making such a difference for those yeah. victims and survivors who come yeah. behind her. I can't, you know, overstate that. No, um, you know, you. their life is, is very different because yeah. of, of women like her who speak out. Yeah. And, and I think for me, the massive difference that that would have made, you know, me and the kids, we never went on holiday until like a couple of years after I paid it off. And, you know, just camping, I know that's a holiday for some, but a proper holiday. I actually went abroad for the yeah. first time in, yeah. you know, about 16 years, I think it was, but before we went. Well, people will be listening to this and just admiring you. Um, you mentioned help from a charity step change in terms of the debt, and we're going to get on to some practical hints and tips, how people can be helped. And I know, Nicola, you're going to talk a bit about signposting, I think. But before we get on to that, and with this question, what I have in mind is financial advisors are often dealing with couples um, or are very aware of a family situation. Um, for every victim stroke survivor, there's a perpetrator. Uh, and you know, I guess there's just as much of a chance of a suspicion of somebody being a perpetrator as, um, as, as, a, as, a, as a victim. So, um, Nicola, what do perpetrators do? How do they use financial products and systems to do what they do? So they use and manipulate and control anything they can, um, which as you just said includes uh, financial products. 
So um, again, things are changing. Um, UK finance has a code of practice around um, financial abuse and how banks and business societies should respond. But certainly traditionally, and not everyone has kind of moved forward, that um, it used to be impossible to close a joint bank account without both parties' consent. So that ongoing control um, was, was present there. Um, similarly, we see something that is continuing and needs to be addressed is where there might be a joint mortgage and um, perhaps the abuser um, has never contributed to that mortgage. Um, you know, the victim alone is paying for it. Um, and then what happens is that, you know, perhaps the fixed term interest rate comes up for renewal. And again, you know, both parties have to give consent for a new rate to be agreed and the perpetrator refuses to do that. So the monthly payment goes up. Um, we see that most ha um, likely happening post-separation. So you can kind of see how the products and also the kind of assistance that sit around them, that ongoing control, quite often is inadvertently facilitated. Mm -hmm. And the more people understand this issue, the more people kind of see that and recognise that we need to kind of close down those loopholes. Yeah, yeah. And, and products that are designed to help couples run their lives better, joint accounts and savings and so on and so forth can work against people in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just that um, example again of Annie's of running up the joint um, overdraft that you know if one party is not engaging the bank will engage with the party who is and yeah. you know they've become the person who has to pay that money back and in this case you know take out loans which again was hugely unfair and, and you just think you know just you could have just looked at that account actually and seen where that money was going you know and perhaps questioned you know why one person is paying off an overdraft you know that someone else is you know fundamentally yeah. enjoying and thinking about financial advisors and the people they support their clients I've heard it that Victims, and forgive the term in inverted commas, don't always know that they are being victims and, and Annie, you kind of hinted at that and perpetrators yeah. might not always know that they are uh, abusing someone, is that right? That can be the case. Um, I think we talked about sort of that entitlement and that entitlement is so strong um, that, you know, anyone who kind of challenges it, um, you know, the perpetrator will, um, you know, just find ways to, um, ensure that their kind of will, um, you know, um, succeeds, I suppose. Um, so, you know, we know that people who abuse, you know, abuse likely all their partners. It's actually something called Claire's Law, where, you know, someone suspects that their partner is controlling or coercive. Um, if they can kind of check with the police to see if they've got previous convictions. Um, you know, we know that perpetrators go on um, to abuse. Um, so they, you know, they honestly believe um, that they have this right to be in control um, and that kind of sense of entitlement, as I said. And, and sometimes they feel that they're being abused when people don't do what they want them to mm. be able to do. Mm. So, you know, that example actually of um, certainly actually, I don't think we did speak to it, but one of the things that Annie had to do was have dinner ready for her partner every yeah. night, you know, months, you know, working three jobs, you know, <laughs> she had to cook a meal from scratch actually every night and there would be negative repercussions if she didn't do that. Um, but certainly I've listened into helpline calls where um, perpetrators have called believing they're a victim because their partner hasn't, you know, given them their dinner on time. You know, they honestly believe, um, you know, that everyone should be kind of revolving around them. And if that's not the case, then actually they feel that they're the, the party that's been abused. Very yeah, high warped sense of reality going on here. And even after I'd left him and gone to the refuge and had evidence and from my doctor and everything and went to court, he still believed that he was the victim, especially in terms of the finances, because where I was no longer there doing three jobs and paying his direct debits for him, suddenly he had to pay all this debt. So he told mm. everyone that I'd left him in place of debt. Mm. But mm. I had nothing, everything, all the 
flash TVs and everything and the gold chains that he wanted and everything, you know, was all gone when I came back home from the refuge. There was nothing to show when it was very bare, my house. Mm. Mm. And he had to start cooking his own dinner. Yes. Let's move on. Let's, let's move on to, let's get really practical advice for people, advice of financial advisors. How, how can a financial advisor, Nicola, tell if a client might be suffering in this way from economic abuse? Um, so there's sort of lots of different signs really, um, either picking up from um, a victim or a perpetrator. So a victim might, for example, you know, have limited information um, about the finances, um, might say things like, you know, I can't make any decisions um, without checking with my partner. They might suggest that they're fearful of their partner. Um, they might suggest, again, as Annie describes, um, that they're not very good at money because that's what their partner's led them to believe. Um, and then in contrast, the perpetrator might be, you know, very clearly entitled, um, say disparaging things about their partner, um, suggest that their partner doesn't need to know um, anything about the finances. Um, and perhaps might um, suggest that you know the mode of communication, for example, is only via them. So there's lots of kind of telltale signs. Um, but I think the more you understand economic abuse and its dynamics, you know, the more those things become actually quite obvious. So mostly it's an education piece to kind of really understand what the issue is. Yeah, and I um, suppose what's true. Oh, yeah, oh I was just going to say, and you mentioned it earlier. I think for me, if anyone, if anyone had asked to see our bank statements as well where they could see that all of my money was going on bits and bobs yeah. and into the um, the overdraft and his would have had hardly anything on it and just lots of money in it and seeing that, for me it's just totally inequality in, in how people yeah. spend their money and yeah. the luxuries that yeah. each partner yeah, has. Yeah, sure, yeah. Real ob obvious signs there, but I suppose there's something tricky here, which is that in a lot of couples, very well-functioning, loving couples, <laughs> there is one person who looks after the money. And sometimes the other person doesn't know much about the money. And we see it quite a lot dealing with bereavement. The bereaved person is left in this situation where they don't know what was going on financially. So there's this job to be done to distinguish between what is the reality in a lot of normally functioning couples, I guess, and what can be the awful exception of, um, of, of economic abuse. Um, um, but what should people do then? Uh, if, 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 if a financial advisor is worried or has some suspicions, what should, what can, they, what on earth can they do? Because they're not there, they're not counsellors, are they? They're not there to solve problems. What on earth can a financial advisor do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're not there to sort of solve, um, you know, their clients' problems, certainly. Um, and I think, you know, people are also hesitant to do anything if they do have suspicions, because they don't want to make things worse, actually. Mm. Um, mm. You know, we've talked about how domestic abuse is about control. So actually anyone would just need to be um, client-led because you don't want to exert control in a situation where someone's already being controlled. So it's very much about giving that empowerment back um, and being led by a client. So, you know, a client might and increasingly um, could actually disclose that they're experiencing domestic abuse and economic abuse more broadly. Um, or, you know, there could be a suspicion, as we've said. Um, and it's just really about letting someone know that they can talk about it and that helps available. So you might say, oh, it sounds as if, you know, um, perhaps something is going on with your finances. Um, you know, people have financial problems for all sorts of reasons, and they could be because of mental health problems or it could be domestic abuse. So, you know, you can introduce it in a kind of roundabout kind of manner without saying, this is what I think is going on. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of create that understanding and that um, 
you know, kind of a, an environment where, you know, someone could share something or at the very least go away knowing that there is help available. So I think, you know, to be a financial advisor, you know, who's clued up on, um, you know, the work of a lot of different charities and organisations who support around a number of vulnerabilities, whether that be economic abuse, as I said, or mental health or bereavement, as you just talked about, Jan. Um, you know, it's really important that victims and survivors know that that help's available. Um, and also that it's available when they need it because they might not be in a place right now where it's safe for them to disclose or to talk yeah, about what's sure, happening. Sure. So again, it's about them being in control. So, you know, I'm a safe space, you know, support is available. Um, and when you're ready and I can help you and facilitate that support for you, you know, then I'm here to do that. And on your website, you've got um, a page dedicated to people who are supporting others. So Surviving Economic Abuse website, the tab I'm supporting someone is going to be a really useful um, resource. And you've also got um, a document or a page dedicated to spotting the signs, a guide for friends and family. So that's another thing for people to look at. Now, I'm going to be really generalist. I'm going to generalise here and go, right, if I'm generalising, quite often it's the male in the relationship who looks after the finances. And it, it, it's, it's almost always, I guess, the male who is the perpetrator. Um, is there more chance of actually the the client being the perpetrator than the victim? And if so, what can a financial advisor do if they have suspicions of the client being the perpetrator? Um, I think it's very difficult. Um, if someone felt really uncomfortable with a client, then there are ways of um, you know letting that relationship go. Um, you know, certainly I would advise against trying to work with both parties. Um, I've spoken to financial advisors in the past who've kind of tried to do that and try to kind of arbitrate um, or mediate in some situations, um, but that's never safe in cases of domestic abuse. Um, so, you know, back to that point where, you know, it's about going to the specialists for support. Um, so please don't try and, you know, bring both parties together um, to try and solve the problem for them. It's just really important, you know, if it's a victim survivor, let them know that help is available. Um, and if you suspect someone's a perpetrator, um, you know, you might want to let that relationship go. Or at the very least, you know, perhaps challenge some of the things that are giving you that idea, um, you know, that they are entitled. So, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable not sharing this information, you know, with your partner, you know. This is about both your financial futures. It's only right that I do so. So again, those gentle challenges without being accusatory, I suppose. And that's quite a balance, isn't it? Because you might have a suspicion it might be correct, it might be incorrect. And, and there's a certain amount of skill, I guess, required in, in asking those questions or making those challenges. Um, and that's just where experience of people will have to come in to judge every situation. Yeah, but I think, you know, that's the only way that we're going to solve this issue because, you know, it's, it is a societal issue and people take that entitlement and privilege from the structures that we live with. And until we kind of challenge those on a day-to-day -day basis, we're not actually going to dismantle them and therefore we're never going to stop abuse from happening. Um, so it can feel uncomfortable, it's not the nicest thing to do. Um, but, you know, I think when there's ever an opportunity and you feel that you can, you know, to challenge, you know, what's clearly um, abusive behaviour is a really important thing to do. Yeah. I think as well, so for me, that's really important because like you were saying, I actually, the, 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 the emotional domestic economic abuse didn't really happen until you were, what, eight years into your relationship, did you say? Mm -hmm. So actually, it's not likely that financial advisors will see a victim or a perpetrator in a first meeting. It's more likely that they'll see the couple together for quite an extensive period of time and then might start to spot signs one way or the other. So to have the, the courage and, and you know encouragement from you guys as, as the experts to, to, to say to financial advisors, you know, you should bring it up and perhaps say to the perpetrator that I'm not comfortable not sharing this information with your other half is, is the right thing to do because that's the only way we can get down to the bottom of it and actually stop investments, you know, moving 
to, to one individual perhaps rather than a couple. Absolutely, and that's such a good point, as you yeah. say, over time. Yeah, yeah, okay. We're going we're gonna to wind up in a moment, um, but there are some useful resources for people out there. And it sounds like, I, I think one thing I'm getting from, from what you're saying, and everybody's got a role to play. Mm -hmm. If there are suspicions in terms of the support you can provide, whether it's just a bit of subtle signposting or whether it's something a bit more obvious to play, everyone's got a role to play. Although one thing you emphasised, and, and you said this to me a few days ago, don't, as a financial advisor, try to be a counsellor as well. You, you've got a role to play, but um, but there are specialists out there, specialists like the surviving economic abuse and debt charities and, and so on and so forth. But in terms of resources, um, what else is useful for people to see? We've talked about your website and the various resources on your website, surviving economic abuse. Um, the UK Finance Code of Practice we haven't touched upon. 30-second summary? Yeah, I did mention it actually. Yeah, um, you did earlier, sorry. Yeah, just around principles. Um, yes, sorry. To support you someone did. who's experiencing financial abuse. So that's really worth a look at. Yeah, yeah. And various other training resources to be found, to be found on your website. So um, I think that's where we need to wrap up. Um, Huge thank you, Nika, and particularly huge thank you uh, to you, Ali, for coming in and sharing your story and talking to us. Um, very valuable, I hope, for our audience, for financial advisors. Just get this up on your radar a little bit more, a little bit closer to the front of mind, um, just to have when you're talking to people. Um, and it's all part of painting a big picture of vulnerability, and vulnerabilities very rarely exist in isolation. Here's a great example of one vulnerability that can lead to another. So economic abuse leading to a financial vulnerability and debt, uh, for example. And it's something we'll pick up more on in uh, the other podcasts in this series. But for now, Hannah, Nicola, Annie, great to see you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. The content of this recording is strictly for general consideration only. No action must be taken or refrained from based on the content alone. Professional advice must always be sought. Accordingly, neither Technical Connection Limited nor any of its officers, employees or contractors can take responsibility for any loss occasioned as a result of any such action or inaction.